Thank you, guys. It's always an, a pleasure for us to uh, come and be with you guys. Now, um, Cass, could you maybe help Levi? Uh, like, he has a PowerPoint, and somehow he tried to connect it with Apple TV, but I don't know. Um, the other day, uh, Connor called us, and he said, like, we would like to have you on a regular basis with us. And um, when I talk to the kids about it, they're so like, why didn't you say yes yet? What takes you that long? Of course we say yes to this. I'm like, okay, I just want to check that you're okay with that. So um, it's always exciting for us to be here with you and to um, worship with you and just, uh, you know, just see your smiling faces and to be at the Shramleys, you know. Um, we really enjoy that. And wasn't that beautiful this morning? You know, I love worshiping with people who love to worship. And I could tell even when you're in, there's times when you worship and you just get sucked right in as a worship leader. Those are my favorite times. So um, here we go. Here, just put it on uh, just a lot here. Put this on. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Well, I... Um, I'm really excited about what I feel God put on my heart, and it's in line with what uh, Kendall already shared and as we were leading worship, because it is about Jesus, and it's about Him leading us into deep places, and Him taking us beyond our own comfort zone. So before I go there, I want to give you, send you greetings from uh, Regina, Pastor Fred and Celebration Church, uh, when I told him that I'm coming to Warman, he said, like, please, please give my warmest greetings to Awakening Church in Warman. So I'll do that. Pastor Fred and all of Celebration Church says greetings to the beloved of Warman Awakening. So they, they wanted to make sure that you know that. So this morning we want to focus on Jesus. It's always safe to preach on Jesus, right? <clears throat> and specifically, his self-giving nature. His uh, nature of giving of himself displayed in the incarnation. And we, I kind of sneaked a little bit through your sermons. Um, and I, I love where uh, your teachers or your your pastors have let you, and so I want to just build on to, so some of it might sound familiar, some of it sound, oh yeah, we've heard that before, then it's okay. Sometimes we need to hear things over and over, right? So the one thing I want to start with is the last song we did. You know, Jesus taught his disciples this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? And we know that. And for me, it's one of my favorite phrases. When I'm praying and you hear me pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's often because I don't know what to pray anymore. But also because I believe it with all my heart and I want to see his kingdom come. But it's important to realize and understand what does that mean? If you ask somebody, we want to see the kingdom of God come, you even had that on your, um, on your mission statement or vision statement. You know, you want to see... A, kingdom expression, right? In your families. So when you ask different Christians what kingdom means, you probably will get different answers. Yeah. And if we're honest with ourselves, sadly enough, Christianity, we have seen a lot of misrepresentation of what the kingdom of God looks like, right? So I will tell you when to move, so don't go too fast. Otherwise, you steal my thunder. Yeah. <clears throat> 
You know, it's, it's like this, it's important to understand there has been misrepresented, and I have been in part of that, that I misrepresented what the kingdom of God looked like. Now you can go. <laughs> so tri triumphalistic and imperialistic interpretations of the kingdom of God or Christianity has forced others into submission and surrender. So when we look at that, we see, you know, the crusades or even the residential schools. We kind of try to force Christianity on people in order to change them. And that wasn't the best way. That's not necessarily how Jesus showed it. Now you might say like, well, that was a few years ago. That was before I was around. And I am perfect at this. I'm doing that just amazingly. Well, just in January, I... Um, I came, I stumbled across a quotation from a spiritual director, a Christian, who um, is uh, advising uh, a politician, a famous politician, which I will not mention the name. But um, here is what this person said. You can go to the next one. God came to, me, came to me last night and showed me a vision of a famous politician riding alongside Jesus on a horse made of golden jewels. This means he will play a critical role in Armageddon, the slaughter of Islam. It will be the bloodiest war in the world. The blood will flow to the brittles of horses for 200 miles. That was January 10th this year, of this year. Interesting expression of Christianity, hey? And I think it's really important to take a good, deep look on that in Christian, especially in our Western society, they're no longer famous for communicating and demonstrating God's love for the kingdom way. Hey? Christianity is frequently associated with being against. Many would label Christians as unkind, judgmental, and condemning. Now, some of them are wrong. I understand that. But sometimes it is true. Christianity has not necessarily been known in our Western world to be loving, self-giving, and the Jesus way. And somehow, something needs to happen about that. If we talk about going deeper, this is one aspect. How will we represent Christianity the kingdom way? And one aspect will be to say, like, I can't do this in my own strength. So this morning, what I will do with you, we want to look at the kingdom way. We regularly call to pause and rediscover afresh what the kingdom of God is all about and how we are called to release it and let it influence our lives. So what I want to do this morning, I want to look at Jesus because he's our role model. I want to unpackage a scripture which is really relevant and some scholars have believed, um, you, you might need to bring it back, oh yeah, it's good. Some, some have believed that it is um, I will tell you when to go to the next one. Okay. No, no problem. Yeah, yeah. I love this. Hey, technology takes, gives us problems which we don't have without it. So if that's distracting for you, don't worry about it. Don't, don't focus on it. So this morning what I want to do, we want to look at Jesus and the role model of the kingdom way. And then from there we want to look at how does that inform our living and the way God called us to live. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he revealed to us the kingdom of God in the purest form. Right? 
In Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus, when he came, he was the exact imprint of God's nature. So when we look at that, we need to realize and understand that in the incarnation, which you looked and focused on in this last season, there was two things which were important. A, through the incarnation, we understood that Jesus showed us what God is truly like, right? Number one. When we look at Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. Number two, when Jesus came and he became one of us, he showed us what true humanity is meant to look like. Okay? It's not just that he came and he was his perfect God, but he showed like, no, the way I walk, the way I live, is what true humanity is meant to look like. You know what Jesus um, stood out for most, more than anything? That he said, I can do nothing without what I see my father do. So let's go to Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Really beautiful and important passage in scripture. And I just want to read that out and then look a little bit at it. And then from there go into the application for us today. Philippians 2, it says, verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we invite you to open up your word to us today. And may you not just open it up, but may you let it be like seeds dropping in our hearts on good soil. That as it will grow, that it will become a, a, a big harvest and lots and lots of fruit. And that we will live our life according to your words. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and being the word of God made flesh. Coming in our midst and revealing to us the Father. Amen. I don't know if you guys know the American psychologist Abraham Maslow. Anyone ever heard of him? Maslow has, is known for hierarchy of needs. And so he basically talks about the different important needs which every human, need, uh, human has. Now his highest need he identifies is the need for self-actualizations. If we have food and shelter and all the, the basic needs, he says like the most um, like coming to um, who we are meant to be is it's about self-actualization. Now, it's really interesting. In our society, we, we see that uh, the goal is accomplished through by, uh, sorry, we can see this desire driving Western society with the goal to accomplish fulfillment through achievement. That's what I say, have up here. Success is often defined by how much money we make, what house we own, what car we drive, or career we have, right? Yet God in Christ revealed to us a different way. He didn't say that the highest needs is self-actualization. Okay? 
So I think that's really important to realize and understand. In this passage of Philippians 2, it shows us that at its center, there is the self-emptying, the self-giving power of Jesus. It's also called kenosis. Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. And we want to talk a little bit about that. We want to look at that. This self-emptying enabled the Son of God to take on our limited human nature for the salvation of mankind. So what we see is that Jesus, rather than self-actualization, Jesus, through his humanity, gave of himself. Right? He said, like, I'm not here to, to grasp on the divinity. I'm not here to coerce or control, but I'm here to give of myself. That's right. Now, rather than achieving success by using his divine power for selfish gain or domineering power, which he could have, the Bible says he humbled himself, right. taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the, God, uh, to the point of death. Now, throughout generations and history, people have wrestled with this self-emptying. What is this about? And I, I would say this. A question this passage rises, and you can put to the next slide. Did the all-powerful God in Christ decide to conceal by giving up his attributes for a time or reveal through self-giving the true nature of God? In other words, did Jesus, by giving himself, show us the Father? Or many scholars, or some people even throughout history, believe that while well, he kind of sealed his divinity there, he didn't look fully like God. Because he hadn't emptied himself of divinity. He became human, and so he wasn't fully God anymore. Now, why would that matter for you today? Let's go to the next slide. The way this is answered is important for the nature of Christian discipleship in today's world. And here's why. Because if I believe that when Jesus came, he emptied himself of divinity, then that means that the way Jesus lived doesn't fully reflect God the way he is. And we could have this triumphalistic God who at the end of time, and there's Christians who believe that, who at the end of time, he will control everyone and make them bow their knees. They can't, and they're just getting coerced and controlled into it. Does that make sense? There's some pastors who I heard, they said, like, I don't really like the Jesus of the Bible. He was like this wimp. But one day in Revelations, he will come back as this warrior, and he will destroy the nations. And that's kind of this, this question. Did he reveal God? Or what did he empty himself? And Jesus kind of was different. So then the way we live our discipleship is kind of we... We humble ourselves, but then at, one, at the end of the age, we will whip those people into being. <laughs> Does that make sense? There is this interesting um, dichotomy. Right. So we need to look at this and ask ourselves, did, what, what happened here? So we want to look at this verse a little bit more in detail. I did. I spent some time in this, studied over it. So let's go to verse 6. You can maybe go back to the... Um, just to the scripture, yeah, right there. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, just want to start there right now. 
though he was God, it's interesting, in the NIV, it says actually, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love that actually better. Because when you see though he was God, it means kind of, well, he was God, but he didn't act like God, right? That's what it sounds like. But when you look in Greek, you will actually find out that this though isn't there. So you can translate this though also with because he is God, right. which changes everything. Because if he is God and he acts like that because he is God, then he reveals God. But if we say like, well, though he is God, he doesn't really act like that. So, so in Greek, it's not there, the though. It, it can also be because, and that's why I like the NIV here, who says, who being in very nature God. Which means like, because he is God, he acts like that. Right. Okay, that's really, really important here. Because only a prosper, proposer has to prove a king doesn't lose his kingship when he strips himself of his royal robes. That's what the early church fathers said. So like nothing will change because he's God. Right. Origen can go uh, right here. Yes. He said that the son emptying himself of his equality with the father and showing us a way of knowing God was made an express, express image of his substance. In other words, what they believed, and we're like, you, you maybe are like, what is he talking about? Well, he used the illustration. He said, just imagine, God is invisible. You can't see him. It is like this statue which would cover the whole earth. And so if you would be here in Warman, and you, you would see this statue, how much of the statue would you see? Nothing really, right? Because you just see maybe a, 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 an aspect of this huge monument which covers the whole earth. So it's like this, just whatever, this wall or you would see. But what Origen said, like, no, when Jesus came, he put on flesh in order to show us. It is like as if this big monument all of a sudden became small and now it's exactly the same than the big one. But you can see it all of a sudden. It would come to Warman, and you would see like, oh, this, this gray material or this whatever, which I can't really see, all of a sudden you can see it. Right. And so it's really important to realize and understand when Jesus came, he didn't take off his divinity. But he came and said like, you want to see what God looks like? Here. I make my, I'm visible so that you can see what God is like. So when we look at verse 7, Jesus' self-emptying enables him to assume a limited humanity, and only by assuming human form could he become the savior of the world, one of the early church fathers said. Now, it's really important because Jesus took on the form of a servant and humbling himself meant like that he surrendered. He didn't just live in independence and self-actualization. You can go to the next one. When Christ came, his life was marked by surrender and submission and servant leadership and humility. He lived a life completely surrendered to the will of his father, right? When he was in the garden, he said like, if there's any other way, get me out of here, God. But not my will, but your will happens. Now it's interesting, when we look at the Trinity, there is mutual surrender to each other, yeah. right? Right? 
It's not that all of a sudden, while only Jesus has to submit to the Father. No, they're submitting to each other. And I think it's really important to realize that. So Paul, in this letter to the Philippians, urges his readers to embrace Christ's model of canonic love through participation. And he says, like, God, Jesus reveals to us the true nature of God. I think that's really, really important. Now, in our Western society, can go to the next one. Fulfillment through achievement has infiltrated Christian discipleship. And the truth of canonic love that makes space and gives freely, modeled by God in the incarnation and crucifixion, is foreign to believers with a triumphalistic Christian worldview. Really, really important. So often I've seen it in my own life that I'm trying to look for things that I, I, I'm okay to humble myself right now, but one day I will be famous. One day everybody will know me and they will say like, whoa, he's awesome. I will get Christian self-actualization, right? I wouldn't label it like that, but kind of. I mean, I came to Regina believing that God called me here to build an apostolic center which will just influence the, the, the whole province. Now, is that wrong? It, it could be that God will do that, but if it becomes about me, something's wrong about that. Yeah. And we've seen that again and again and again. You know, when we look at the early church and Christians around the world in places like China, India, or Iran, we can see the willingness to embrace this self-giving love precisely in the willingness to die to self. I don't know if you know, but in Iran right now, we see that the church is the most, the fastest growing church in the whole world. Did you know that? If you want to look um, at a really interesting documentation, it's called Sheep Among, Amongst Wolf. Uh, really, really interesting. Talks about what's happening in Iran right now. And there is many, many Christians, many women, who become apostolic leaders and who they are willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. Literally. You know, here's one who said this. They can slander, beat me, and rape my body, but they will not be able to take away my love and commitment to Jesus. Wow. One of them came to America with his um, wife, and they became refugees, and his wife backed him, please, let's go back to Iran, because the sleepiness in the Western society is killing us. And so she backed her husband, can I please keep go back to the place where I get re raped and beaten because I can live out my Christianity in a different way than here. When I heard that, I was like, Jesus, I need a different way of looking at things. You know, ways, centuries ago and today, the kingdom way has turned the world upside down. And I believe that it will happen again. But I believe there's something where God is saying, and look at your Look at me and look at what discipleship is meant to look like. And it has to do with what Kendall said this morning. Not about self-will and discipline. Okay? It's not about discipleship is all about you just have to work harder and be better. And then you be frustrated again because of shame and guilt. And you're like, I'm not a good enough disciple. It might be for Kendall or for Connor or for Nico, but not for me. Right. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. And I tell you one thing. I know about me. I don't know about those two. 
But I don't know about me, I fail on a regular basis. And I have the same thoughts of, if discipleship is all about my strength and power, I'm not able to do this. So I don't want to go too long today, but I just want to, I want to just hit this a little bit. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 16, 24 to 28. This is Jesus' call for discipleship. This is what he asked his disciples and us to, and we know all that, that scripture. It says here, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the call of discipleship. You've heard it many times probably before. And it's like this, it, I don't know how for you, but for me it felt glooming over me at times like this sword. You know, it's like unattainable, unattainable. I can't do this. Anyone ever felt like this? What do you mean take up your cross? I'm not able to do that. Often we heard those words and the call to activism and it felt unable to measure up to this call and invitation. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my uh, heroes. He said this, suffering and rejection sums up the whole cross of Jesus. Jesus must therefore make it clear beyond all doubt that the must of suffering applies to his disciples no less than to himself. Now, I don't like this, but you know what? We're not the only ones. You know what happened right when, this, when Jesus asked right before? Let me, I, I, don't, I want to just go quick there. Peter and his disciples were together with Jesus and, and Jesus asked him, who do, you, who, do, who do the people say I am? And he's like, well, some say you're... Messiah, Elijah, John the Baptist. And he says, who do you say I am? And Peter stood up. It's like, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And he got this amazing prophecy. prophecy. You know, it's like, whoa, flesh and blood didn't uh, reveal that to you. But you will be Peter on on this rock. I will build my church. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Like, if I would have got that one, I would have been like, whoa, guys, did you hear that? John, did you hear that? (laughs) And what happened next is really important and crucial. Because then Jesus says, I will suffer and die. And you know what Peter said? No, don't do that. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Ever called your friend Satan? (laughs) I did once. Didn't go down well. (laughs) He didn't like that. And that should be a reality, reality check for both Jesus and for us, okay? In that, uh, not for Peter and for us. In that context, Jesus said this. He said, if anyone wants to follow me. Now, number one, the road of discipleship is not forced upon us, but is an invitation. Right. Sadly, in our Western Christianity, it is the road less traveled. But it's not accomplished through self-will and discipline, but awareness of our need for God. It says, if you want to follow me. And then it says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Now, why are we meant to do that? Have you ever asked yourself that? Is God this sadistic, masochistic God who enjoys our pain and suffering? 
This is an important question to get confronted with. Because if we have a God whose wrath gets satisfied through the sacrifice of his son, then there is kind of this thing of, well, it seems like he enjoys this. And he's no better than any of the Greek gods who sacrificed their children. Now let's just look quick at the cross. Go to the next. The cross was known as an instrument of torture, public humiliation, and most gruesome death to the disciples. When Jesus said that, they didn't know yet that Jesus would die on the cross. So it stripped people of their dignity and self-importance. That's what they were kind of aware of what happened here. So Jesus' invitation to true discipleship is an embrace of voluntary, self-giving love of Jesus. The Philippians 2 one, we talked about that right now, right? He said like, I'll give, give of myself, I empty myself. And Jesus is modeled by becoming one of us and going to the cross. Now following this call, we humiliate, um, will humiliate and ultimately kill our false ego in the most gruesome ways. It will challenge the self-defeating message of self-centeredness, self-hatred, and self-pity. You know what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross? Is there is a false self in us since the fall. Go to the next one. We are enslaved to our ego, and the only way to freedom is the utter distraction of self according to the flesh. Does that make sense? God is not there to say, like, I just enjoy your suffering. He says, like, no, there is a false you running around which tries to self-actualize and be someone and be important and make a difference in this world. And somehow that needs to die. That, because that is not who God is. God is giving of himself. He's self-emptying. So now let's go to the next, it, not, not yet, sorry. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God is not a God of death, amen? He's not a God of destruction, but abundant life and goodness. And his desire is not to torture and kill us. He's the giver of all life and love. Yet he reveals that true life, and it's only possible possible through the death of the destructive, never satisfied ego of ourselves. The Jesus way impoverishes our ego through surrender and obedience. You know, many, uh, a few weeks ago, at the beginning of the year or the end, I, I don't know if it was Christmas or not, I, real, I got confronted with my own idols. And I realized that all of a sudden as I spent time with Jesus, that there is this idol of Wanting to make a difference to the world. Obviously for the kingdom of God. But I want, to make, I want to be recognized and I want to be famous and I want to make a difference. And God revealed to me that this is an idol in my life. And as I, I get exposed to that, I realize that I don't, want to, I don't want to worship idols. I mean, I wanted to live my life for him for all of my... But sometimes you realize it's an idol. So I remember coming to Jesus spending some time in prayer, and I, I took those idols, it was those little gold statues, and I put them right in front of Jesus, and I knelt down, and I said, Jesus, he asked me, will you give them to me? And I'm like, here they are, brought them. And as I was in prayer, 
all of a sudden I saw Jesus taking those and he started eating them. I was like, whoa, don't do this. It makes you unclean. <laughs> it's our, our, you know, our mindset sometimes. It's not pure. It's an idol. And Jesus takes them and he eats them. And then he started stretching out his hand and said, like, son, will you walk with me? And I said, sure, I would love to. And I, I took his hand and we walked together. And he said to me, you know, son, there's some things in your desires. They're from me. I want you to make a difference in this world. But if it becomes about that, it will become an idol. And he said to me, as you walk with me, I will feed you of my word like a mother bird feeds his, his young, her youngs. And you will realize and see that some of the desires in you, of your heart will get fed back to you. But it will be not about this. It will be about you walking with me. When we look at discipleship and taking up our cross, it's not about, can you do this? Because where's the focus? It's on me again. Oh, I will try. I will give my best, God. And again, it's my ego. Look, I'm a good disciple. Peter showed us again and again what that looks like, right? When the ego rises up. So the question I want to ask you before we end is, what idols or destructive behaviors of the ego does God want to confront in you this season? God's desire for you is to step into true life and freedom. What are some places in your life where you realize discipleship is not about you becoming better and trying it again. And if you just read your Bible more and pray more and come to church on a regular basis, then you are a good disciple. Now, don't hear me say that you shouldn't do these things, right? We, we go both ways sometimes. But it's not about what you do first and foremost, but it's about what he has done and where he's inviting you into. Philippians says, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not about have this mind in you when you're strong enough and when you're just good enough. He says, no, it is yours in Christ Jesus. You take his hand and you walk with him. And that is what discipleship will look like. You know, um, uh, Connor started reading this morning from the Sermon on the Mount. And really the Sermon on the Mount is one of the biggest, best explanations of what discipleship looks like. You know, when you read that and you feel like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. If you, you know, look at somebody, rip your eye out and, and all of those things, it's like, well, great. That really comforts me. Now, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we want to see a kind of a narrowing down of the Sermon on the Mount, it's the Beatitudes, right? And if you want to have a summary of the Beatitudes, it's the first Beatitude. You know what it says there? Look how it starts. And that's a summary of what discipleship looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And Kendall came today up here. And he said, we don't know how to do this sometimes. So can we look to Jesus? That is what spiritual poverty looks like. And that is what God is inviting us into. Discipleship is a call to surrender and saying, I can't do this without you. Why? Because Jesus himself said that. He said, I can do nothing unless I see my father do. 
Many times I try to be better than Jesus because I try to live my Christianity discipleship in my own strength. Let's just finish with one quote from one of my favorite theologians who is alive today is Brad Jerzak. Here's what he says. Poverty of spirit indicates our crucifixion with Christ to the demands, dictates, and cravings of the lost and deluded ego. By grace, the poor in spirit leave the house of lies we call home and embark on the Jesus way of Gnosis. Like Christ, we let go of attachments, empty ourselves of ego e egoism, and set aside the slavery impulses of grasping and clinging. Kendall said it's about grace. I love this here. By grace, not by discipline, not by self-will, but by grace. The poor in spirit leave their house of lies. They come and say, Jesus, I want to be a disciple. But I can't do it. And Jesus says, like, will you take my hand? <laughs>